listening to the coffee hour i'm andy bates i'm sarah golseth thanks to concordia university wisconsin for supporting the coffee hour find out more about concordia university wisconsin at cuw.edu live uncommon we are continuing the english reformation series with the reverend dr cameron mckenzie professor of historical theology at concordia theological seminary in fort wayne indiana all right last time we met we were just leaving off right before the 1580s and Cliffhanger. You always leave us on a cliffhanger. <laughs> do you do that in your classes too, Dr. McKenzie? Always leave us on a cliffhanger? No, I usually just leave in the middle of a sentence because someone wants to get into the classroom. So it's not nearly so good as here on the radio. <laughs> <laughs> well, welcome back. Glad to have you back. Let's. Where do you want to pick up with the English Reformation in the 1580s? Well, I do want to get to the Spanish Armada, but we have to back up one year and that Mm -hmm. is to 1587, the execution of Mary, Queen of Scots, and to understand how it is that the English Protestant leadership under Elizabeth felt by 1587, we need to talk just a little bit about the background to Mary, Queen of Scots and what kind of threat she seemed to represent to English Protestantism. Mary, Queen of Scots, had inherited the throne of Scotland when she was six days old. Her father, the King of Scotland, had just lost a battle with the English. He died suddenly and unexpectedly, and he left behind him as his heir, an infant, an infant daughter, Mary, Queen of Scots. So for the first number of years of Mary's reign in Scotland, she was under the control of adults, one of whom was actually her mother, and you and your listeners are going to love this one. It's another Mary. This is Mary of Geese. Well, (laughs) the only thing to really know about the mother is that she was closely tied to the Catholics in France. Um, Mary of Geese was a, a Catholic noblewoman from France, and consequently, the mother and her supporters in Scotland were able to arrange for a marriage between the daughter, Mary, Queen of Scots, and the heir to the throne of France. Consequently, when Mary was five years old, she was shipped off to France, there to be raised in the French court by her French relatives, while her mother stayed in Scotland to run the country. Yeah. So Mary, Queen of Scots, from five years old until she's 18, is actually in in France and probably knew more about France than she knew about Scotland. During the time that she's gone, Scotland is under the domination of the mother and really kind of a faction of, of Scotland that was interested in strong relationships with France. However, Protestantism was starting to be felt among the Scottish nobility. And they didn't like the French influence anyway. So we have a division taking place in Scotland between the Catholic monarchy under the mother and the Scottish nobility now becoming Protestant. And actually, the Protestant faction prevails. In 1557, 
they drew up an agreement to establish a Protestant National Church for Scotland. And then a few years after that, the English, under Elizabeth, one of the first things that she did was to send ships to keep the French Navy from landing in Scotland and also sent soldiers to Scotland to help the French no help the Scottish nobility overthrow the Catholic Regency. And as a matter of fact, Mary, the mother, dies, as does her strong Catholic supporter. So by 1559, 1560, Scotland has become a Protestant country, all during the time that Mary, their monarch, is not even there. She's back in France. Well, going back to Mary, in 1559, I think it was, she married uh, the man who very quickly became Francis II, King of France. So Mary, by birth, Queen of Scotland, by marriage, is Queen of France. And had things worked out a little differently in history, we might be talking today about the United Kingdom of Scotland and France rather than Scotland and England. But they didn't work out that way. Um, Mary's husband, after about a year on the throne, got a bad earache. The earache became an abscess and he died. So from being queen of France, Mary becomes dowager queen of France. She no longer had much of a role in France. And so she decided to come back to Scotland. For the first time in 13 years, she comes home. And when she arrives in 1561, 1562, somewhere in there, Scotland is a changed country. It is now a Protestant country and she's a Catholic. Now, had Mary been, you know, kind of a wise political type the way Elizabeth is, she might have been able to bring back Catholicism and restore it and so forth. But she wasn't that type of person. Now she's a widow. She's back. She's Catholic. She doesn't like the Protestants. She gets married. She marries a Scottish nobleman. Elizabeth, who's the supporter of the Protestants in Scotland, didn't like the Scottish nobleman because the nobleman, as well as Mary, had royal blood and both were seen as perhaps a threat to Elizabeth's throne. But Mary did it anyway. She conceived and bore a child. This was in June of 1566, a little boy. But her husband was a disaster. He was arrogant, he was stupid, he was condescending, he hung around with low-class people, he wanted to be king consort as well as just the king's, the queen's husband. So Mary is kind of out of love with her husband. She has a, a secretary, some think she had some kind of dalliance with. I don't think that's particularly true, but her husband apparently thought this. And so it was at a dinner party that the husband and these Scottish, I want to say thugs, broke, in, broke into the queen's living quarters and dragged the secretary out into the next room where they put him to death. And, and this was a time when Mary was well along in her pregnancy. So this kind of ends a good relationship with her husband. Mary now takes up with one of the Scottish Protestant nobility, a fellow by the name of Bothwell, the Earl of Bothwell. And shortly after that, the castle in which her husband was residing blew up and they found her husband dead, although apparently he hadn't died from the explosion. He had died from being suffocated or strangled. Uh, Mary 
the, the nobleman Bothwell was suspected. Bothwell abducts, kidnaps Mary, takes her off. They get married. Now, Bothwell had been married himself before. 12 days earlier, he'd gotten a divorce from his Protestant wife. Well, all of this is too much for the Protestant nobility. They rise in arms against Mary. She's their queen, but her scandalous life has made it, given them reasons to go against her. And by June of 1567, they have taken her prison prisoner and she abdicates in favor of her son who will now be raised by Protestant nobility. She tries to get back on the throne, raises a small force, they're defeated. And in May of 1568, she arrives in England seeking refuge. Elizabeth grants her that refuge, but she becomes the center now for Catholic opposition to Elizabeth because she is Elizabeth's closest relative, a natural heir to the throne. But for the next oh, almost 20 years, we have one plot against Elizabeth after another. Um, one after another. There's the Throckmorton Port, the, the Babington plot, the Rodolphi plot, the revolt of the Northern Earls, on and on and on. During those years, Elizabeth's advisors really want Elizabeth to take forceful action against Mary. She's, she's put in her own kind of castle and she can't leave it. So she's got under house arrest. But Mary encourages these plotters and the plotters are always unsuccessful, but Mary keeps on encouraging the next one. So for example, in the Throckmorton plot, uh, Throckmorton was the nephew of a very important Protestant leader, but he had converted to Catholicism, got involved with this plot, and it almost came off. But English authorities found out about it ahead of time, were able to stop it, Throckmorton, get arrested, and so forth. The English took an extraordinary, the English nobility took an extraordinary action at that point. They took a bond of association, which they promised that they would not recognize somebody like Mary, Queen of Scots, who had taken the throne by assassinating Elizabeth. Very, very unusual. In the next plot, the Babington plot, Mary was involved again, and this time the proof was unassailable. They had her own handwriting, the plotters. So the advisors to Elizabeth were successful in persuading Elizabeth to have Mary put on trial. She's put on trial. She's found guilty. The punishment is beheading. So then the advisors have to persuade Elizabeth to sign the death warrant. Elizabeth doesn't want to do this because she doesn't, she doesn't think it's right to go after another kind of crowned head of Europe, somebody whom God has anointed to be a monarch, even if the monarch is opposed to Elizabeth. So she really doesn't want to do that. But finally, they persuade her that she has to do that. So she does. And then she does not give orders to send the death warrant up to the castle to have Mary executed. And she just won't do that. So finally, her secretary and the counselors, they do it on their own authority. They send the warrant off and Mary is beheaded in 1587. Now, everybody is happy in England. Bonfires blaze, bells ring when news reaches London that Mary, Queen of Scots is dead. But Elizabeth is furious she throws the secretary into the Tower of London. There he lingers 
until finally her counselors are able to persuade her, no, this was the right thing to do. You're much more secure on your throne if Mary, Queen of Scots, is dead, as she was. Well, why don't we take a brief break here, and, and then I'll come up back with the Spanish Armada. Yes, I'm looking forward to the Spanish Armada. I did not realize there was quite so much drama with Mary, Queen of Scots' story, so that that is very interesting. Why read fiction? When I, you can... Right, when you can just yeah, read history. exactly right. <laughs> No, you don't, you don't need to make up anything more in this story. All right. <laughs> nope. Don't have to make it up at all. We're talking with Dr. Cameron McKenzie from Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne about the Protestant Reformation. We will be right back. You're listening to The Coffee Hour. I'm Sarah Golseth. I'm Andy Bates. At Concordia University, Wisconsin, we believe you were created for a reason, to use your God-given gifts to help others, to live a life of self-sacrifice in a me-first world, to live a life that's uncommon. Whether you're taking one of 50-plus online programs or learning with us in person on the shores of Lake Michigan, you'll be equipped to make an uncommon impact. Learn more at cuw.edu. Concordia University, Wisconsin. Live uncommon. Welcome back to the Coffee Hour. I'm Sarah Golseth. I'm Andy Bates. We are talking about a very interesting English Reformation with Dr. Cameron McKenzie, Professor of Historical Theology at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. We heard all about Mary, Queen of Scots before we went to break. Is it time for the Spanish Armada now? Just about. All right. Yeah, we have to we have to realize that religion and politics are intermingled completely at this period. Mm. And that that meant for a country like England, foreign affairs were also much, also very much intermingled with religion. Now, by the time we get to the reign of Elizabeth, her brother-in-law, Philip II, is the king of Spain. He's a very dedicated Catholic, as well as somebody dedicated to making his country strong and wealthy. It's during this period of time that Spain is beginning to exploit the new world and bring back gold and silver and make Spain into kind of the leading leading nation of Europe at the time. But Elizabeth and Philip are, are tangling over more than one uh, more than one uh, problem. For example, Philip is not only the ruler of Spain, he's also the ruler of the Netherlands. And in the Netherlands, you have uh, a revolt going on against the rule by the king of Spain. And that revolt is fueled by Protestants who don't want a Catholic ruling their country. The Netherlands historically have close, been closely allied with England. England produced wool, sent it over to the Netherlands, and the Netherlands turned it into nice cloth. So the important trading partners. And Elizabeth uses her influence, her money, and then even troops to help the Protestant rebels in the Netherlands. So that's one area of a conflict with Philip. Another area of conflict with Philip is pretty English traders, well, basically pirates operating in the Caribbean. These are privateers who have their own ships and they can sometimes be, you know, merchants, but other times they can be pirates. One of the more famous of them, perhaps you've heard of, that is Francis Drake. Drake was one of these uh, privateers that went after Spanish possessions, Spanish uh, treasure ships and the like in the Caribbean. 
And on one particular instance, he was blocked from coming back to England. So he did something rather extraordinary. He took the long way home. He went around the tip of South Africa, crossed the Pacific, went around the tip of Africa, finally returned to England, was in 1581. Drake was a fiery Protestant and claimed the blessing of God upon this adventure, but he became the first Englishman to circumnavigate the globe. He was the first one to do it after Magellan had done it in 1519. And when he got back home, the queen was so thrilled with his accomplishments, as well as all the booty that he kept bringing to England, that she knighted him Sir Francis Drake. So Philip has that against the English, that these privateers are creating grief for him in the colonies that he's building up in the Caribbean and South America. And then there is religion. Philip is a good Catholic. Elizabeth is a good Protestant. And from Philip's perspective, that means that Elizabeth is sending her people to hell. So Philip had been supportive of Catholic efforts to send missionaries into England to reconvert the country, if you will. There had been thoughts that he was going to support maybe Mary, Queen of Scots for the throne with fairy forces, but he never did. And as a matter of fact, that was actually highly unlikely. Uh, Scotland was traditionally allied with France, not Spain. Spain is usually an enemy of France. So the idea that he was going to put onto the throne of England a Catholic, but a Catholic who was also half French on her mother's side and would ally with France was unrealistic. But Mary is dead as of 1587. So now Philip can more easily promote the interests of somebody else to take Elizabeth's place. And through some kind of convoluted dynastic reasoning, he began to urge his daughter as the rightful monarch in England. Well, that wasn't going to happen, but decides finally that he is going to send a large fleet of Spanish sailing vessels to England. It will carry thousands of soldiers, but it will also stop off of the Netherlands and load thousands more. And together, the fleet will take those, all those soldiers over to England where they will wage a campaign against Elizabeth to unseat her and replace her by a Catholic claimant to the throne. Now, this wasn't the first time that there would be a conflict uh, between the Spanish ships and English, nor would it be the last time, but this was really a big time. It was a big effort. It took a long time to build the ships, for example. There were 130 of them when finally they were complete. It was supposed to sail in 1587, but Francis Drake had raided the harbor in which they were being assembled and had sunk enough of the ships to delay the Armada for another year. When things were ready in the spring of 1588, July, a fleet of 130 ships, 7,000 soldiers, I'm sorry, 7,000 sailors, 17,000 soldiers went off from Spain and entered the English Channel. Now, the idea was for them to move up the English Channel, anchor off of the Netherlands, put the additional soldiers on the ship, and then move back to England. To meet the Armada, the English mustered a, a, a smaller fleet, just as many vessels. They were smaller, but they were also uh, swifter. They could 
move more easily. They were placed under the leadership of one, one of the lords, Lord Howard of Effingham, and Francis Drake served as his second in command. Initially, the Spanish fleet uh, managed to move up the English Channel without the English being able to do much damage. They, they kind of sailed in a, a crescent-shaped form so that if the English attached, attacked one part of it, the other wing could sail back and surround them. So it was a, a pretty good way to move. Then they got up to the Netherlands. They stopped there, let down their anchors. They discovered, first of all, that the Spanish commander in the Netherlands wasn't ready for them. So they're going to have to wait. And this provided the English with an opportunity to employ another strategy. And this strategy worked because what they did was to send in fire ships. And the fire ships, I mean, these are all wooden vessels. So if you've got a fire coming at you and you're the captain of a ship, you don't want to stay there and get hit. You want to move. So it forced the Spanish ships to break their formation. This enabled the English to move in more quickly and to kind of tackle the Spanish ships one by one. And so they were successful then in breaking the formation, in sinking some of the ships, and then preventing the rest of the fleet, the ones that had so far survived, from going back down the English Channel. Well, if you want to get back to Spain and you're not going to go through the English Channel, you have to go the long way around, which means go into the North Sea, around Scotland, and down along the west coast of Ireland in order to get back on the route to Spain. So that was, that was the strategy. Well, as later historians described it, the Spanish fleet was met by a Protestant wind. And that means these terrible storms on the North Sea, which really battered the fleet and caused more losses than had the English fleet when they had been fighting. So when finally the Armada limped back into Spain, it had lost about half of its ships, between 5,000 and 15,000 of its soldiers. It was a disaster for Spain, and it was a tremendous victory for England. It's kind of one of the building blocks in the reputation of the English Navy. But more important than that, Protestants in England saw this as a blessing of God on behalf of their queen and of their religion. So it kind of solidified Elizabeth as the monarch and Protestantism as the religion of England. So it's a just kind of a major turning point in the story of the Reformation as far as England is concerned. Wow, Elizabeth, the Spanish Armada. And I know there's, there's so much more. <laughs> We have one more episode. We're going to try to wrap it all up in <laughs> next time. Dr. McKenzie, thank you so much for sharing this great this great history with us and this wonderful time in the English Reformation. So much history packed into just this little time. Thanks so much for being our guest today. Thank you very much for having me. You've been listening to The Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. The Coffee Hour with Andy and Sarah is a production of KFUO. To support the Coffee Hour and KFUO Radio, visit KFUO.org. You can also text KFUO to 41444 or send an email to gifts at KFUO.org. And you can call us at 800-844-0524. KFUO. Christ for you. Anytime. Anywhere. Anywhere.